Father, as we come to your word, we come as sinners who are hungry and who need Christ, who are lost without Christ. And we pray, Lord, that your word would strengthen us, would convict us, would correct us where we need to be corrected, but above all, that it would glorify Christ. We also pray for our many children who are present here today, both inside and outside of the womb. We pray for their salvation as well. We pray that seeds would be planted once again today, Lord, and that those seeds would, by your grace, by your mercy, that they would bear a rich harvest one day, that they would believe savingly in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life from him. And Father, for us, use this time, use your word to conform us more into the image of Christ for his glory, and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans. We're in Romans chapter 11 to start today, but we're also going to be in Romans chapter 16 uh, so we're going to be looking at both, uh, there are a couple passages that we'll be looking at. Five years ago, uh, we actually started a study that we're going to be concluding today. And of course, that has not been a weekly study. It's been a study that we do every year on Reformation Sunday. Um, and in case you're not familiar with what Reformation Sunday is, it's the last Sunday of October. Uh, we call it Reformation Sunday because it was the last day of October that Martin Luther nailed his complaints, his protests against the Roman Catholic Church to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, which is recognized as the event that began or that led to the Protestant Reformation. So over the course of the past five years... We've studied these doctrines that were collectively known as the solas. These are doctrines that were recovered in the Protestant Reformation. It started with sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola fide, which means faith alone. Solus Christus, which means Christ alone. The final one, which we're going to be looking at today, is called soli deo gloria, which means for the glory of God alone. Sometimes I'll sign an email, SDG. It's short for that. Soli deo gloria. We have a new sign hanging out in the banner that says that. Uh, it's or hanging out in the foyer. It says soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone alone. Now it's important to recognize, by the way, that these solas, these doctrines, are not doctrines that uh, were founded or that originated in the Reformation. Rather, they were recovered in the Reformation. They had been lost and forgotten by the church at large. And as the church lost focus on these five doctrines, on these great fundamental doctrines, the church strayed further and further from biblical faithfulness. Now my concern, when we started this study, my concern, I thought it was important to do a study like this because I fear that the church in our day and age has also lost focus on these great fundamental doctrines of the faith as well. These are challenging times for absolutely everybody. I don't think anybody would contest that. But I don't believe that the church has been faced with challenges like we see today since the Reformation. 
the more I understand the Reformation, the more I study it, the more I, I read about it, the more clearly I see that we face so many of the same challenges, the same struggles that men like Martin Luther and John Knox, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli faced in their day, particularly in terms of the purity of the gospel and the church's purpose. Now, it isn't difficult to prove that in so many Christian circles in our day, the gospel has either been watered down to next to nothing, or it's just been downright compromised, replaced by false gospels that offer no hope and that offer no redemption. We see the prosperity gospel, for example, offering worldly health and worldly treasure. We see the social gospel offering a justice that really doesn't even come close to resembling the kind of justice that's prescribed by Scripture. We see the feel-good gospel in which people aren't confronted with the reality of their sin, but they walk away from a church service and a sermon feeling good about themselves. And that's the point for them. And all these false gospels are absolutely everywhere, and they're growing. Roughly 70 years ago, there was a Christian author who looked out at the church of his time, and he wrote this in his book called The Knowledge of the Holy. His name is A.W. Tozer. He wrote this. He said, quote, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very awareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. He goes on to say, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the Spirit. And he goes on to say, this loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field." End quote. That's quite a statement. Great book. Quite a statement. He, he saw that the church's doctrine and, and their practice were deteriorating. And that it had happened just little by little. Just one little compromise here, one little compromise there. One little thing here, one little thing there. And before you knew it, they were so far away from where they started. He saw that there was quantity of churches, but he saw that it had come at the expense of quality. And do you suppose that the conditions in the church that he observed in his day have improved or changed for the better in any way since then? Consider this, that in 1996, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals drafted what's called the Cambridge Declaration, which issued basically the same complaint. It said this, it said, quote, the loss of God's centrality in the life of today's church is common and lamentable. 
It is this loss that allows us to transform worship into entertainment, gospel preaching into marketing, believing into technique, being good into feeling good about ourselves, and faithfulness into being successful. As a result, God, Christ, and the Bible have come to mean too little to us and rest too inconsequentially upon us. End quote. Now, that statement was drafted 50 years after what A.W. Tozer had written. Had things improved after 50 years? Not at all. In fact, they had gotten much, much worse. And now, let us consider our own day. Do we think that things have improved drastically since 1996 when that statement was drafted? No, they haven't. I would propose that the reason that the church's focus has been lost is because we've lost sight of our destination. We've lost sight of our goal, our purpose, the end toward which all things are meant. In other words, we've lost sight of the purpose of everything, including the church's mission. There are countless Countless churches and ministries in our day whose message essentially boils down to the idea that the chief end of man is to glorify himself and to enjoy his life forever. Today we're going to consider two passages that I believe are going to help us recover the purpose of everything, the purpose of all things. And in these two passages, I think that we'll see that the purpose for which all things happen, and the purpose for which all things exist is the glory of God. The glory of God. Imagine for a second setting off on a vacation in which your pilot uh, has no idea what the destination is supposed to be. For, for whatever reason, it, it's, it's slipped his mind. He's supposed to be headed, let's say, just to uh, Anchorage, Alaska, but somehow the pilot forgot, can't remember and so he takes off, and he's supposed to be headed to Anchorage. What are the chances that he's actually going to end up in Anchorage if he has no idea where he's going? Zilch. None. Uh, you know, slim to none. And in the same way, if we don't understand the goal, if we don't understand the purpose of all things, if we don't understand that it's the glory of God, it becomes very easy for us to be headed in the wrong direction when it comes to the church's doctrine and practice. Friends, the flesh is so strong. If we don't keep our eyes fixed on the glory of God, it is so easy for us to start thinking that everything is all about us and our comfort and our happiness. So there are two beautiful statements pertaining to the glory of God being the purpose of all things that are found in the book of Romans. The first one is the doxology that we find in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. And the second one is the benediction that closes the book, which is found in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. So let's start with the first one. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. This is the doxology that Paul concludes chapter 11 with. He writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, first of all, we have to understand why Paul even put this there. Why did he put this doxology? I mean, you'll find doxologies often toward the end of books, but he puts this one smack dab in the middle of this book. So why did Paul put his doxology, this rich doxology, right here of all places in this theological masterpiece of a letter that he wrote? It's placed right before, actually, a whole new section that starts in chapter 12 uh, and, and goes through chapter 16. And that whole section focuses on the practical aspects of the Christian life. But it comes, this, this doxology here comes right after, so it comes between two sections. It comes right after he has laid out this whole systematic, comprehensive doctrinal foundation through the first 11 chapters. He started off the, uh, off the book by showing us how desperately, hopelessly lost humanity is because of sin. Then he moved to discussing the atoning, redemptive work of Christ in redeeming us and rescuing us from God's holy wrath. Then he discovered or started discussing the nature of our life in Christ and the unshakable permanence of it. The certainty that God's work in us will not fail and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then starting in chapter 9, uh, Paul discussed God's activity throughout human history, specifically talking about how God had used the rejection of Jesus by the Jews to graft Gentiles into the family tree. It's really an incredible experience to read through and, and to really dig in and study uh, the book of Romans. Uh, some of you may know, Jamie, I know you know, uh, the first study I did um, that I preached through was Romans, and I spent five years doing it, uh, just starting. I'd love to do it again someday, because I was so new to preaching back then. But one thing I realized when I was reading that book and, and learning from that book is that Paul had this incredible understanding of all these doctrines, or so we would think, right, that Paul had this great understanding but what Paul realized when he reaches this point in the text was not that he understood so much, but that he understood so little. Indeed, how little anyone is capable of knowing about God and his unthwartable plans and purposes. We, we are as capable of understanding God as a paper bag from Walmart is capable of holding a full-grown blue whale, which, by the way, is the largest animal uh, on the planet. The finite, that's, that's us, we're finite, just cannot grasp the fullness or even the beginning of the fullness of the infinite. That's God. But the verse that I want to draw our attention to for our purposes today is verse 36, where Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is what you would call a universal, comprehensive, all-encompassing statement because Paul says that this is true about all things. See what he says there? He says all things. From him, through him, to him are all things. All things. So let's take this just one piece at a time. All things are from him and through him. That includes the universe, 
physical creation and everything, everything that has ever come into existence. The only thing that never came into existence, by the way, is God himself because he exists eternally and infinitely. He never came into existence because he has always existed. And this verse tells us that God is the uncaused cause of everything that exists. exists. Everything else was caused. God is the uncaused causer, you might call him. Everything comes from him. Everything that exists that began to exist, came from him. There was a time when there was nothing but God in existence. But his plan, by the way, which also came from him, was to create. And so he created. Not because he had to, but simply because it pleased him to do so. See, God didn't create the the world. He didn't create the universe because he needed something. As if he was lacking in something, if he lacked something, he wouldn't be God. He, he, he uh, would have been insufficient in and of himself. So why did it please God to create? And it's because he desired to demonstrate his glory. David understood this when he wrote in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. In Isaiah's vision, that he had in chapter 6 of Isaiah, when he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, we're told, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, so let's not forget. We're talking about the, the earth being filled with his glory. Let's not forget that humans live on the earth. We're part of the created order. Why were we created? For the demonstration and the manifestation of God's glory. God says in Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? You need to know, friend, that this simple principle applies to you. That God made all things for His glory and you are made by God. He made you for the sake of His glory. Contrary to the idea that our highest calling in life is to glorify ourselves and enjoy life forever, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why did God create us? Uh, What is our purpose? And the answer is one that you would do well to put to memory. The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You have to understand that there is something so much greater, so much better, so much higher, so much deeper than the pursuit of our own happiness and our own glory. You can pursue those things, but ultimately you will find that in the end, those things are completely unsatisfying. They are here for one second and they are gone the next. If you're living for those things, you're living for something that will not comfort you, that will not satisfy you, and that will not give you lasting 
joy, or happiness. God created all things for his glory. But all things also would include abstract, intangible things such as truth, such as righteousness, such as mathematics, such as the gospel. This is why truth is unchanging, by the way, because it's from God. And God himself is unchanging. He is truth, Scripture tells us. It's, it's one of his attributes. Righteousness, which is that upon which ethics and morality are based, they're also unchanging. That's why we affirm that the culture never has the right to take something that God has declared is evil and say that it's good, and they also don't have the right to take something that God has said is good and declare that it is evil. And yet, that is what they do, left and right, all over the place. The culture, the world is in rebellion against God, and they do this all the time. As if righteousness, as if the standard of righteousness is something that changes with what the culture enjoys or prefers or likes. Not at all. It doesn't. The gospel is also clearly included in Paul's mind as he writes that all things are from him, through him, and to him. The gospel is what Paul has spent 11 chapters unfolding. So it's central to Paul's thinking here. So then let us understand, because the gospel is central to Paul's mind here, and salvation is central to the gospel, that salvation is also from God. It's from God. God is the one who saves. God is the one who redeems. As Jonah declared in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. He's the one who planned it in eternity past. It didn't come from the mind of a guru. It didn't come from the mind of a monk or an ancient priest or a rabbi or a prophet even. It came from God. The human mind could never have conceived of a plan that not only satisfies God's wrath against sin, but also satisfies his desire to redeem sinners. The plan for salvation is entirely from God. When humanity comes up with their own ideas for salvation, it always, always, always includes work. Do this, do that, earn this, earn that. It's all about work and merit. Just look at the, look at the religions around the world. Not a single religion in the world outside of Christianity contains the idea that salvation is entirely by grace and grace alone. Therefore, who gets the glory for the gospel? God does. Because it's from Him. Salvation is also through God. He's the one who accomplished it. He didn't accomplish just part of it with the idea that we'd accomplish the remainder of it. He accomplished all of it by sending the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and to achieve what no man could possibly achieve, that is, fulfilling God's righteous requirements for salvation by upholding every iota of God's law, never sinning, never straying from the will of the Father. Nobody could do that except God himself. God provides what God requires. The Protestant Reformation involved rediscovering the glory of God 
in all things, including the gospel, which is why we have the solas. See, the reformers, these saints of old, they understood that salvation is from, through, and to God. That's, that's why we have the doctrine of sola scriptura, so that nobody can mess with that doctrine. The doctrine of sola scriptura means that scripture alone informs what we know about God and about salvation and about reality. Scripture alone is our authority, our highest authority, and anything that contradicts Scripture is therefore rejected, necessarily false. This is the foundation of the entire Christian life, that Scripture and Scripture alone is our highest authority. If it's not, there will be compromise. That's why it has to be at the foundation of the entire Christian life. It was so important that the Reformers themselves even called it the formal principle because they recognized that Scripture is from God and that it glorifies Him alone. As the Reformers spoke and wrote of salvation by grace alone, they recognized that no man, no person, can take even a small, small, small amount of credit for his salvation and that all man deserves from God is wrath. That's all, we, that's all we've earned. That's all we deserve If God saves, if God elects based on anything about us, anything within us, then we're not saved entirely by grace. And thus the glory would not be entirely His. But since God saves by grace alone, the glory is all His. God alone gets the glory. As the Reformers spoke and wrote of salvation through faith, alone. They understood that faith is a gift from God. It's, it's a fruit of the Spirit, uh, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And it's not from man, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. God alone is glorified by us having faith because it's from Him, through Him, and to Him. When the Reformers spoke and wrote of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they understood that Jesus alone through his work on Calvary, accomplished our redemption. It has nothing to do with anything that you or I or anyone else has done or could have done. The doctrine of solus Christus, Christ alone, therefore, gives God alone the glory. All of these great doctrines, these beautiful doctrines of the Reformation, lead us to this final amazing sola, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. To Him be the glory forever, Paul says. And when we understand that God's glory is the purpose of all things, we know how to answer some of the toughest questions in life, like what's the theme of the Bible? What's my purpose in life? Why does this or that happen? The answer to all those things is the same. Ultimately, for the glory of God. Now, we might not understand exactly how God is glorified in in so many things, but that's what his word reveals, is that all things are for his glory. So, so, So what is the theme of the Bible? It's not about us. It's all about God's glory. All of it. From the first word in Genesis to the last word in Revelation. It's not about us. All things, including Scripture, are for God's glory. 
Now, here's a common objection that we'll face to something like this. What about sin? Sin exists. Is, does sin somehow glorify God? Is God glorified by sin? And the answer is yes. Think of it this way. If there was no sin, what would God save us from? What else could demonstrate the glory of God's wrath? Oh, the glory of God's wrath. We don't talk about that very often, do we? Even God's wrath is full of his glory. So yes, even sin serves a purpose in the glorification of God in his universe. God's glory is actually illuminated further by sin because when we understand how vile and how disgusting and evil sin is, God's righteousness is glorified. It's seen as being that much cleaner, that much purer, that much higher, that much better. And while God has ordained sin, this is an important principle too, while God has ordained sin, he has not caused it. He did not cause sin. All God needs to do for sin to exist is to step back and remove his grace, even slightly, even momentarily. Because left to our own devices, that's all we would do, is sin. And that's all that we would desire. And that's all that we would want to do. In fact, God will also be glorified in the future by punishing all sin ultimately and in separating and sequestering his people from its presence forever one day. There will be no sin in heaven. It will be cast into the outer darkness, into the lake of fire. And God will be glorified in that. Now, if we understand God's plan of redemption and saving his people, as outlined in Romans chapters 9 through 11, we can grasp the reality that God did not make us, uh, did not save us to make us happy or safe or, or anything like that. He saved us for what? For his glory. And our happiness and our security, our safety, is a byproduct of that. But his purpose in saving anyone is his glory. God is glorified when a wretched, vile sinner becomes more and more like Christ. But we also learn from those chapters, Romans 9 through 11, that God is glorified in executing justice on those who are not saved. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 to 24 says this, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles." Now, I get it, you might not be entirely comfortable with this idea, but here is the truth that God's word reveals very clearly to us in Romans chapter 9. And that is that in salvation of the redeemed, God is glorified through the demonstration of his love and of his mercy and of his, uh, his grace and his compassion. But also that in the damnation of the lost, God is glorified through the demonstration of his power and his wrath and his justice, and his patience. All things, everything, is from him 
through him and to him for his glory forever. But let me go back to a statement that I made earlier, but only very briefly. And that statement is that you, friends, each one of you individually, was made for God's glory. No exceptions. You were made for God's glory. You are from him, you are through him, and you are to him. Let me ask you this. What do you have? What's God given you? Has he given you maybe beauty, good looks? Then he's given it to you for his glory. Has he given you wealth? Then he's given it to you for his glory. Has he given you poverty? Then he's given it to you for his glory. Has he given you afflictions? Then he has given it to you for his glory. What do you have that he has not given you? All that you are, all that you have, it's all by his sovereign decree. He's ordained from eternity past that you would be and that you would have what you are and who you would be who you are and it's all for his glory, not yours, not mine, but his and his alone. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. What can a person have that hasn't been given him from heaven? Nothing. Let me read it again. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you didn't receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, people were boasting because they were living as if what they had was from them, not from God. Now, let me ask you this. Let me ask you if you have something specific. Do you have a desire to know God? Do you have a desire to know God? What do you have that you did not receive? Do you want to know God? Do you want to understand more about God, more about Jesus? Is that desire within you? A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. What I want you to see is that if you have a desire for God, if you've desired to seek him, if you've desired to know him, if you've desired to please him, or if you're, you're attempting to honor and glorify him with your life, these things are not from you. By nature, you did not desire God. By nature, you did not love God. By nature, you did not seek God. In our unregenerate state, before we, before we were born again, Paul says this, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. So if there's something good within you, and seeking God is good, isn't it? Then where did it come from? It came from God. And God alone. It didn't come from you. It has to come from God. Because a desire for something holy can only come from a God who is holy. 
the determination to seek God only comes from God. And if you desire God, if you love Him, if you want to know Him more fully, if you want to desire and to, uh, if you desire to, to glorify Him, you've received these things, these desires, because God Himself has given them to you. The Bible teaches that they are actually foreign to human nature. And why has God given you these things? For His glory. Everything that you have is for His glory. Now you might say, how can I glorify God? I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a wretched sinner. I, what's going to keep me from falling away from the faith? What's going to make me, uh, you know, prevent me from making a fool of, of myself as a Christian by sinning? And the answer is found in the second passage that I want us to examine briefly. It's the second passage in Romans that really, really hones in on, really zeroes in on the glory of God, and that's the benediction that closes the book in uh, chapter 16. So let's turn to Romans chapter 16 very briefly. It's at the very, very end of the book, the last words that he says, verses 25 to 27. Paul writes this, Now to him who is able to establish you, According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So if the question is, how can, how can I, as a wretched sinner, how can I glorify God? What's going to keep me from failing? The answer is God. And God alone. He is glorified in redeeming you. He is glorified in preventing you from falling away from the faith, from slipping from His hand. And as verse 25 tells us here, it's because God is able God is able to establish you, is what Paul says. The Greek word that gets translated as establish here means to make stable or to place firmly. It means to strengthen or to to make firm. And we see it used in some very significant passages, the same Greek word used in some other very significant passages. Luke uses the same word when he wrote that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem and bear the wrath of God and complete the work that had been given to him. It's the same word that Jesus used in describing the gap, the, the, the unfathomable, uncrossable chasm that was established between paradise and the great place of torment. These are clearly things that no man and no, no being but God himself is capable of establishing or of moving. It's the same word that Jesus used when he assured Peter that while Satan had requested to sift Peter, very interesting passage. Jesus had also prayed for Peter that he would strengthen, there's the word again, strengthen the brethren when he had returned once again. Same word that gets translated as establish here in our passage. Is it possible, by the way, for Jesus' prayer to not be answered if he had prayed for Peter? Would the Father and the Spirit not be of the same mind and the same desires as Jesus? No, we don't have a double-minded God. Jesus would have been outside the will of the Father if the Father had a different will for Peter than Jesus did. 
right? So no, Jesus asks these things and these, things, these prayers are going to be answered. It was impossible that Peter would not strengthen the brethren because Jesus had prayed that Peter would. Paul says, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen. There's that word again. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. That's from 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. This is the assurance that you and I have. This is the confidence that you and I can have. You will not fall from the faith because God's glory is at stake in your salvation. Same reason, remember when Moses prayed his intercessory prayer? God was going to destroy the Israelites, and Moses says, hey, the, the Egyptians are going to be making fun of you. If you they'll say, hey, you brought us out here to die. God understood, Moses understood, that God's glory was at stake. And so God relented. The evil one will not prevail against you because God's glory is at stake. God is able to establish you, to strengthen you, to make you firm by his grace and to place you in his family permanently. Think about your life, friends. Think about your life. Think about what you have and what you do for the Lord. What could you possibly do without him? Jesus said, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do Nothing. Nothing. So if God has established you by his grace alone in the faith, then you will bear fruit. You will do things because he's working in you. We will abide not because of how strong our grasp is on him, but because of how strong his grasp is on us to establish us, to strengthen us. Apart from his work in us, establishing us, causing us to abide, and him abiding in us, strengthening us. We can't do anything. And so with that in mind, friends, understanding that spiritual work can only be done by the Spirit of God, we have to understand that we are not able to do a lot of things. We're not able to stir up a revival in our land. We're not even able to establish a faithful church we're not even able to convert one soul. These are things that the Spirit of God works to do. And he's able. God is able. We're not able, but he is. And so therefore, we must, if we desire these things, we must look to him for these things. Of course we want revival. We pray for revival in here. But it won't happen if we lessen and lower and cheapen our view of God and his glory, if we're doing it for anything but his glory, why would he do it? We pray that he will. In the 15th and 16th centuries, God raised up these incredible men, these reformers, in the midst of a time in which most of Europe had grown ignorant of God because the church had lost sight of the glory of God. We praise God for his work in them, in these reformers. And as we look around our culture and our world today, we see the need all around us for God to raise up and establish a new generation of his people to stand fast on these doctrines that we call the solas. All for the glory of God. 
And so by the grace of God, may history show that we were granted the same courage, the same convictions as those saints of old, and that through His establishing of us, through His strengthening of us, we stood firm on these biblical doctrines of the Word of God. If we're going to be remembered for anything at all, may it be only for our willingness to stand faithfully on God's Word and to believe in His promises and to contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And may it all be for the glory of him who is able to redeem, establish, and strengthen unworthy sinners like you and me. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We confess to you that in our flesh, it's so deceptive and it's strong enough to convince even us that it's all about us. But your word brings us back to the truth that all things, all things are for your glory. We pray that as we continue on this Christian journey that each of us is on, that this would be the destination for which every one of us strives and works, that it would all be for your glory. Convict us and correct us when we pursue any other goal but your glory. And we pray, Lord, that many would see your glory reflected in us and that they too, that you would draw them and glorify yourself through people who don't know you by drawing them to Christ. And may it all be for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.